and we're continuing with our discussion of the Bhagavad Gita based on insights from Mr. Davis's book, The Eternal Way, which is based on commentaries by Paramahansa Yogananda, which was influenced by Swami Sri Yukteswar and began this process in our Kriya tradition with Lahiri Baba, Lahiri Mahashaya. So Lahiri Mahashaya, one of his favorite texts was the Bhagavad Gita, and he would have uh, opportunities for satsanga. Sangha is the group, the gathering. Sat is truth, so the truth gathering. And he would uh, sit in his parlor and read from the Gita and comment on it and discuss it. And so in this way, uh, many of his disciples were inspired to also make commentaries based on his insights and his uh, understanding of the symbology. And so there are several uh, commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita that were written by his personal disciples. He didn't actually write one himself, but, uh, but his comments and his uh, insights were recorded. And then Swami Sri Yukteswar wrote a commentary on, I think, the first nine chapters of the Gita. And that's available. And then, of course, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda did an extensive uh, commentary. And so there have been many, but this is uh, very deeply ingrained in our tradition. In our, it's kind of in the DNA of our Kriya Yoga tradition. And so it's useful to uh, go back and, and sort of mine the treasures that we find in, in this uh, teaching and to continue to explore. So yesterday we finished chapter three, which is the, is the wisdom of action or karma yoga. So this is the chapter regarding karma yoga, the wisdom of action. And last night I was looking at the Charaka Samhita, which is uh, the text, uh, one of the primary texts in Ayurveda, uh, the science of living, the science of wellness. And in there, uh, one of the sutras says, that wise people should refrain from satisfying the urges. We talked yesterday about the, you know, the problem with uh, sense urges constantly being uh, a challenge for us. And so in the Charaka Samhita, it says, wise people should refrain from satisfying the urges related to greed, grief, fear, anger, vanity, shamelessness, envy, excessive attachment and coveting of others' property. So we were talking yesterday about, you know, the natural desires the natural urges that come up and we have some that are life enhancing, some that are useful for us to be able to fulfill our purposes. And, but these are the ones to avoid. So greed, grief, fear, anger, vanity, shamelessness, envy, excessive attachment, and coveting of another's property. So that can give us a little bellwether as to what to avoid. And then the other things that we find useful and enhancing and beneficial um, are okay. So now we're into chapter four, and this is the renunciation, or the, I'm sorry, the knowledgeable renunciation of action. So we had karma, this was the yoga of action, and now we're talking about the knowledgeable renunciation of action. So what's this about? And we begin with Krishna saying that I taught this imperishable doctrine to Vivasat, God of the sun, more than a hundred billion years ago. More than a hundred billion years ago. And then Vivasat told it to Manu, father of humans, and Manu to King Ishvaku transmitted it from one generation to the next. So, so here Krishna starts off and says, I taught this to, to the sun, the God of the sun. And of course, we also are, remember that this is all, all symbolic. There's a symbology involved here. And if we kind of understand the code, if we understand the code, then we can understand a little deeper about what's being said. So Viviswat is radiance, is the impulse or, or shining forth. Um, so this is the impulse to express. 
So the impulse to express is shining forth, viviswat. This is the light that begins manifestation. And remember, Krishna is pure consciousness. Krishna is the is the uh, ultimate rea- the expression of ultimate reality. And so he's saying that ultimate reality in the beginning was the impulse behind this radiant light, which expressed as the universe. And then Viviswat, Viviswat told it to Manu, the father of humans. And so Manu, so here's light expression expresses, and then it expresses a sound, which is own vibration. And this ends up expressing as cosmic mind, Manu. Manas is the mind. And so we have expression, first light. Then we have the uh, emanation of cosmic mind, Manas. And then, um, uh, and, and, I'm sorry, to Manu, father of humans. And from Manu to King Ishvaku. And this is representative of life force. So we have uh, emanation of light. This is all coming from consciousness. I taught coming from consciousness into light, into sound, into manu, into cosmic mind, and then into prana, into energy, into life force. So that's what these names, these Sanskrit names represent. This is transmitted from one generation to the next. It was known for eons to all the primeval wise men and the seers and the philosopher kings, but over dwindling ages, the doctrine has been lost. So the doctrine is the doctrine of yoga, the doctrine of samadhi, the doctrine of coming back into full awareness, the full consciousness. This is the doctrine, Samkhya philosophy. And this is what we talked about uh, a great deal in the last chapter, chapter three. And so we've, we've already looked at this. I'm sorry, in chapter one, in chapter two, chapter two, the knowledge of how all this is put together, Samkhya philosophy. So, so we looked at that. And here we're saying that, that this knowledge is known to all the primeval wise men. Well, who are the wise men? And the interpretation of this is that the wise men are the chakras. So the, so the seven chakras, the centers in the body, activated, wise, these are, um, when they're activated and when, they're, um, and when we're fully conscious operating through them, then we are conscious, mindful, and, uh, and awake. But over time, this wisdom, this knowledge is lost. We become identified with this limited point of view, and we lose this innate intelligence that we have kind of comes with us we lose this in, uh, awareness of this innate intelligence and we start to become identified with the senses with the activities with the mind with the conditionings with the limitations all these things obscure our awareness of our true nature and obscure our ability to operate fully through each one of our chakras each one of these centers has a has an important function and when we're really tuned in and they're awake and open um, you know we're very vibrant and, and wise and when they're shut down and limited then we suffer so there is a you know there's a, a process here and so and Roy says the radiance of consciousness in the spiritual eye as light vivis what energizes the mind Manu and vitalizes the chakras the royal sages so this is this is another uh, another interpretation of this whole thing. So so here we have light, which activates the mind, which activates the chakras and the senses, and this is part of this what Krishna is saying that I am that behind all this. I am that which has taught this from the beginning. When the attention is constantly going outward, attachments obscure awareness. Attachments obscure awareness, and then we uh, experience illusion. We don't see clearly what's happening. We misperceive. We are deluded, and we forget our nature, and we forget what's really going on around here, and we suffer. So then he goes on, and so Krishna goes on and says, this is the ancient doctrine that I have taught you today. Since you are my devotee and my friend, 
This is the innermost doctrine. So this is, I'm telling you what's the important, what's the juice here. So, the, and this is coming again from higher consciousness through our intuition to try and help wake us up. And now Arjuna, who's paying attention now, he's not, you know, sitting there looking at his bow on the ground, but he's actually listening to entire consciousness, attentive, paying attention. He says, <clears throat> he says, but you were born countless eons later than the God of the sun. How is it possible that you taught this doctrine to him? So, so the, the lower self presumes that the true self, that this, uh, that this essence of what we are, our individualized consciousness, emerged at some point after creation. So we have come out later. We have come out as a result of some interactions and some expressive process. And what Krishna says is, I, I was here eons before there was even the sun. And so now Arjuna is going, well, how can that be? You know, because obviously you're born far after that. The self is not born after emanation, after creation, after expression. The self is always the self. It always has been, always will be. And so this is the place where Arjuna is a little confused. And so Krishna comes back and says, many times have I been born and many times have you also. All these lives I remember and you only recall this one. So consciousness knows itself, it knows all of its expression, and as we're identified with this limited point of view, we're only sensitive to, we only have awareness of what's happening right now, and we have forgotten, lost touch with this larger expanse of adventure and expression and manifestation that has been our, our true experience. And Krishna says, although I'm unborn, I'm deathless, I am the infinite Lord of all beings. And through my own wondrous power, I come into finite form. So I am the Lord, the infinite Lord of all beings. And so this is, Lord means the governing influence. Consciousness is the governing influence of all things, all manifestation, all expression. This is the, this is the, the order the ordered process and the intelligence that's inherent in it is the Lord of all expression, all manifestation. Whenever righteousness falters and chaos threatens to prevail, I take on a human body and manifest myself on earth. Whenever righteousness falters and chaos threatens to prevail, then I take on a body. And so, Again, the symbolic, whenever righteousness falters, this is sattva. This is the elevating, radiating, illuminating aspect. So when this starts to, when the light starts to dim, when the light of, of, of light in the world, when awareness starts to dim, we start to get more confused, more diluted. And tamas, that is the, the chaos, threatens to prevail. So the, the forces of tamas, of inertia, heaviness, deadness, when these things start to emerge and come up and, and, and be, become active in our life, then consciousness is awakened and it starts to move us. It starts to impel us to do better, to make a change. So not only are we talking about in this grand scale, and of course in the grand scale of things, we look on, look historically and we see that whenever times have gotten really dark, whenever the, you know, we've had the, um, heaviness on the planet and, and uh, you know, gone through some uh, challenging times globally, that there are always individuals that show up, you know, there are always these incarnations, if you will, of um, Vish Vishnu, the preserver, Krishna is a, uh, Vish Krishna is an expression, a manifestation of Vishnu, the preserver of the universe, that which keeps everything happening and moving harmoniously. And so it was Ram. And so we have many of these incarnations, mythological or real, um, of individuals who come along and they're transformative influences in the world. The world changes as a result of their input. Um, you know, one of the ones that we're probably the clearest and, 
and is the most understood on the planet is Jesus. So here's someone who comes along at a time when uh, consciousness is low, when we have this uh, challenging time on the planet, and, and his awareness, his teaching inf influences in a dramatic way, a much more dramatic way, much more impact and much more reach than he ever had when he was alive came as a result of his consciousness. You know, it was picked up by St. Paul, who became his marketer and, you know, promoter and, and really is responsible for what we know of as Christianity today. Um, and other individuals came along and put more words in his mouth and created more uh, structure and around this. But the result is that, you know, we have this huge transformation in consciousness on the planet that happened as a result of this one person. And so, so we see these things happening. We see in, in, over time that there are turning points where history starts to move in a new direction. You know, we have a, a change. And this is also part of this larger scale. But on the personal scale, here's this, this impulse that comes from within and it, and it, and it moves us. It, it emerges and it gives us this impulse to change, to wake up. You know, we finally got to the place where we're, we've, we've uh, reached the dark night of the soul. Or I used to work with uh, uh, marketing on an alcohol and drug and uh, substance abuse treatment hospital here. And, you know, they would, they would, the common knowledge in the industry was that someone really has to hit bottom. You know, an alcoholic has to be at the place where they just are completely out of control and they know it. And when they get to that point, then they're ready to be treated. They're ready for help. They're ready to turn around. See, So we get to that place where it just, we just have to have a change. This comes from within and it automatically comes. You can't interfere with it. It happens naturally, automatically. Uh, a perfect example is to just try to hold your breath. Try to hold your breath until you pass out. Let's try. Can't do it. It's impossible. There, there is an intelligence, an order, and an intelligence within you that says, "This is it." You know, this is as far as we're going to let you go. You better open your mouth because we're getting some some wind in here. You know, and so in the same way, we can we can abuse ourselves. We can go down the wrong path. We can, you know, get to the place where we're you know, where we're. Uh, not living very mindfully or consciously, but at some point there's this thing within us that goes, I just have to do something different. I have to make a change. I have to stop eating. I have to start exercising. I have to change because what I'm going through right now is not acceptable. I'm suffering. See? So this is what, this is this impulse. So whenever righteousness falters and chaos threatens to prevail, I take on a human body, I activate, I become uh, enlivened and manifest. In order to protect the good and to destroy the doers of evil, to ensure the triumph of righteousness in every age I am born. And this is in every age within us. So every time that we find that we've kind of wandered off the path, uh, you know, in the Christian tradition, they used to call it backsliding. You know, we have good intentions and we're moving ahead. And then the next thing we know, we're kind of back to where we were. The New Year's resolution uh, is, has been long forgotten. And then we got to sort of catch ourselves and stop and change. Whoever knows profoundly my divine presence on earth is not reborn when he leaves the body, but comes to me. Whoever knows my divine presence on earth and in this body Whoever knows my divine presence as being that which is the animating principle, that which is us. See, when we know that completely, then when we're when we leave the body, we're not uh, compelled to be reborn, released from greed, fear, anger, absorbed in me, and made pure by the practice of wisdom. Many have attained my own state of being. So, wow, this is possible to attain this state of being, to be fully conscious, fully aware. And what's the, what's the recipe? Released from greed, 
from anger, from fear, and to be made and to be absorbed in me, to be absorbed in higher consciousness, to be absorbed in this awareness. This makes uh, this makes us pure, and by the practice of wisdom. So we are intentional, we are wise, we are discerning, we are paying attention to what we're doing, what we're thinking, feeling, how we're acting. So through wisdom and this purity as a result of coming into this awareness of higher consciousness, we too become fully awake. We too become fully enlightened. We too um, regain our Krishna consciousness, our Christ consciousness, our awareness. However men try to reach me, I return their love with my love. Whatever path they may travel, it leads to me in the end. So it doesn't really matter what our path is. It doesn't really matter what we're doing. It's the intention behind what we're doing. And, the, and so higher consciousness is saying, look, if you make an attempt, if you just make the effort to reach me, to come to me, in whatever way you're doing that, I return my attention, my awareness, and my blessing. So, so it doesn't matter what we're doing, how we approach this. It's just what matters is that we do approach this, you see. That we do come into or engage in a process of coming into the awareness of our true nature, of engaging in a spiritual practice, of doing whatever we can to remove the obstacles, remove the sense, the feeling of limitation and separation, and to allow ourselves to wake up, to clear the mind so that we can rest in this awareness, have this experience of our own conscious nature. Wishing success in their actions, men sacrifice to the gods, for ritual can bring success quickly in the world of men. And so, so what are the what are the the sacrifices? What are the gods that we're sacrificing to? And Roy says the gods are the causative principles. So, so our sacrifice to the gods are to release our sense of limitation, let go of these ideas we have about why we can't do things and why we can't move and why we uh, are not able to express. These limitations we have, we sacrifice. We give these, give these over. We learn to cooperate. Learn to cooperate. This is another sacrifice, a way that we engage. So we say, okay, we look around and we see how does the world work? How does nature work? What is being called forth from me? How do I live harmoniously? How do I take good care of myself? And so the practice of taking good care of ourselves and interacting wisely with the world around us, this is sacrifice. We are, we are um, making a commitment to interacting with life in a mindful, conscious way. And another way we uh, practice um, sacrificing to the gods is through our creative imagination. So we use our creative imagination, like we talked about yesterday, use our creative imagination in order to see and to, to feel and see ourselves to be in our ideal condition, in our ideal state. And so we are, we are active. This is an, these are actions that we take. This is our sacrifice to these causative principles that allow us to wake up, allow us to come more into harmony with life. And Krishna says, I founded the four caste system with the gunas appropriate to each. Founded the forecast system with gunas appropriate to each. Although I did this, know that I am the eternal non-doer. And so, again, consciousness manifests, expressed as this forecast system. And in India, we have uh, we have these forecasts that are set up. But again, the code here in the Bhagavad Gita is that these castes are really the combination of the gunas and karma. So we have the, the four castes are uh, sattvas, rajas, tamas, and our karma. Together, these uh, indicate, these set up the possibilities for our expression. Um, and they are, uh, and Roy goes on and says that we see these in the cosmic cycles. 
Swami Sri Yukteswar talked about the, the Kali Yuga and the Tetra Yuga, Satwa Yuga, these, these various cycles of uh, growing consciousness and merging consciousness from the dark age to the awakening electrical cycle and the mental age and then finally the golden or golden or enlightened age. So these cycles are, are one level of this conversation. And the other level, uh, Roy says, uh, incorporates tamas. So when we are fully engaged and fully under the influence of tamas, this is heaviness, inertia, dullness. We do not see clearly. We do not think clearly. We operate with this very limited idea about ourselves and, and the world around us. So this is heaviness. This is the first. And then we have uh, the combination of tamas and rajas. So we bring these two together and we begin to have a sense of independent thinking. We start to think for ourselves. This is the beginning of this process kind of awakening. And then tamas and rajas, I'm sorry, and then uh, rajas and sattvas, this is uh, where we start to persevere. We start to, to really become intentional and we start to look for uh, ways of working in harmony with the world around us. So rajas is activating, and now it's instead of rajas influenced by tamas, which is the beginning of looking around and thinking, now rajas influenced by sattvas has us thinking about the larger society, you know, what, what we can do to help, uh, uh, you know, save the environment and, and support our society, our social structure, and ourself. And so now we're beginning to wake up more. This is the third stage. And then finally, the, the stage of sattva, where we are insightful, intelligent, and we begin to really uh, support and experience our spiritual qualities. So again, Krishna said, I founded the forecast system. But here again, we're talking about moving from this uh, unaware, unenlightened state in tamas to the beginning of some activating of a mind starting to think for ourselves with Thomas and Rajas and then being able to see outside of ourselves to look beyond ourselves into the world with Rajas and Sattvas and finally to be able to really activate the intellect and wisdom and to be able to begin to really develop our spiritual qualities when we're under the influence primarily of Sattvas. And then he goes on, uh, Krishna goes on and says, Actions cannot defile me. Since I am indifferent to results, all those who understand this will not be bound by their actions. Actions cannot defile me because I am indifferent to their results. And all those who understand this will not be bound by their actions. And so once again, we're repeating the theme in, from the last chapter, and that is that we are not identified with, we're not tied to, we're not concerned with the results of our actions. We act to act. It's like I remember Alan Watts saying, the reason that we dance is to dance. You know, we don't dance to see how quickly we can get across the dance floor. Um, when we play music, you know, the ideal is not to see how quickly we can get to the end of the piece. It's to have the experience, to have the experience. So we we dance to dance. We play music to play music, to experience this, to, to be in this, you know, in this awareness, in this moment. And we act to act. We act because we can act. We act because hopefully there's a, uh, you know, a useful impulse that comes from within us to say to do this. And we do it to do it, not to look at the result, not to be uh, tied to something in the future. <clears throat> And he goes on and says, what is, what is, what are action and inaction? This matter confuses even wise men. So I will teach you and free you from any harm. What are action and inaction? And action, of course, is, is whatever is causative. This is the causative influence. You must realize what action is, what wrong action and what inaction are as well. The true nature of action is profound and difficult to fathom. He who can see inaction in the midst of action and action in the midst of inaction is wise and can act in the spirit of yoga. 
He who can see inaction in the midst of action and action in the midst of inaction. And so here we are, <clears throat> again, grounded in this experience of what, what, I would, what I just said, which is that we are doing what we do in order to do it without thinking about the results, without worrying about whether we're doing the right thing or the wrong thing, whether we're acting in the right way. We just are established in, in being and allowing our innate intelligence to direct us. It's time to, it's time to get up and move, we move. And, and we can do this without uh, compulsion, without feeling like I'm doing this, I'm engaged in this, see? So we just get up and we do what we do and things happen. And oftentimes, um, and I mean, I, I, I really like this, uh, this statement that Krishna makes in here later. He says, I do nothing and nothing remains undone. I do nothing and nothing remains undone. And I think, wow, this is really great. And I see so many times in my life, in my experience, where, you know, things just work out. Things just happen. And and I look around and I say to myself, sometimes I say to my wife, look, you know, I do nothing and nothing remains undone. This just worked. It just happened. Uh, and a, a small, you know, insignificant example, just a couple of days ago, um, we have someone who comes to uh, to do some heavier heavier duty house cleaning a couple, couple times a month, help take care of the property here. And, uh, and so, uh, and this has been going on for a little over a year. And so last week we were talking, we said, you know, this house cleaner is, um, you know, it's great to have somebody to actually, you know, show up and do the work, but they're not doing that great of a job. And maybe it's time to start looking around and seeing if we can find an alternative, find someone else that will be able to do this and, you know, cost good money. So we should be able to get some, some uh, service from that. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, I'll just start putting the word out and see if I can get a referral from someone. And the next day I get a text from this person who's been cleaning our house. And she says, I'm sorry to tell you, but I can't clean your house anymore. I'm going back to school. And so I've had to cut my client list down to, to only two people. And so, and so I'm thinking, wow, I don't have to even fire this lady. She fired herself just as just having this conversation. I do nothing and nothing remains undone. I mean, this is a simple, very small example, but I see this happening all the time, all the time. You know, it's just, a, it's just a, interesting to observe how the universe is supporting us in this way. And so this is what Krishna is talking about. We, we, uh, we engage, you know, and we, we act, but we do this in a, in a way that is not you know, compulsive and that we're not trying to make anything happen. We do what we're impelled to do, knowing that we're living in harmony with life, and we can. So there's no compulsion, no willfulness. Um, Roy says, uh, I'm sorry, Krishna says, without desire for success, without anxiety about failure, indifferent to results the individual burns up his actions in the fire of wisdom no desire for success no anxiety about failure indifferent to results he burns up his actions in the fire of wisdom and roy says that means no compulsion we have no compulsion we have no willfulness compulsion is obsessive urges these things that you know compulsive we have to do this and Willfulness has to do with emotional immaturity and being self-centered. So if we're emotionally mature, if we're balanced, if we're not looking at what's in it for me, self-centered, um, and if we're not uh, compulsive about what we're doing, then we act in this very harmonious, natural way. It unfolds perfectly. And, um, and uh, Krishna says, and he burns up his actions in the fire of wisdom. So we're no longer accumulating any karma. Remember, karma is the law of cause and effect. Every cause produces some effect in the future. Everything that's happening now was produced by some cause in the past. And so 
So everything that we're doing is creating new karmas or causes that are creating new effects that will play out in the future unless, unless we're not doing anything. Unless we're not causing things because we're impulsive, we're not causing anything because we're compulsive, you know, and we're not being willful and we're not being self-centered. If we just act in this very natural way, remember uh, someone in the Buddhist tradition said, you know, uh, the idea is that uh, that we walk along and if the wind starts to blow in our face, we turn and we walk the other way. So the wind is always behind us, you know, or sauntering Thoreau. Thoreau wrote an essay about sauntering. He said, I walk out the door and I saunter. And to saunter means it's actually a, a spiritual path. We actually uh, just come from the word uh, spiritual and it means to go out and not have a destination. You walk out the door and you just go. And wherever your path takes you, wherever you're led, you, you don't have any agenda, no place to go, nothing to show up. You just follow your guidance and your intuition and you saunter. You just walk out and see where the path leads today. Or see where there's no path and just go off through the, through the woods, into the forest. Sauntering is a wonderful thing. And if you haven't ever come across this, I highly recommend just taking reading uh, Thoreau's essay on sauntering because, uh, you know, it gives you a little perspective on how we can live life without being so driven and compulsive. So that can be useful. Uh, we have a couple of questions here. Um, how does one avoid grief? And Walter says, by observing it, realizing it as what it, what it is and choosing the opposite and someone else uh, and says to further Michael's question as grief is a natural response to loss it's not important to allow oneself isn't not allow important to allow oneself to go through the grieving process and also for fear any suggestions on how to apply these foundations to deal with the fear that's resulted from past trauma And, uh, and then Ariana says, so essentially what people call evil is actually traumas, tamas, tamas. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to grief and fear. How do we deal with grief? Um, grieving is a natural process. It's a part, you know, there's a natural uh, disconnection that happens when we lose a loved one, when we lose a job, when we lose a, uh, you know, our health sometimes, there's uh, conditions and trauma, tra uh, traumatic situations that, that come about for, uh, for everyone from time to time. Some are much bigger and more heavier and, and more difficult to deal with than others. But so, uh, so how do we deal with that? Well, and what's Krishna talking about here? And what's Roy talking about when we talk about um, moving beyond grief? So, so, so it's useful to uh, honor and to acknowledge the feelings that we're having and these feelings this grief is an emotion and emotions are built from uh, several different components and so one of the components that comes to build this emotion that we have is our introceptive network that is the, the body pays attention to what's going on inside the body so it regulates its temperature, homeostasis, it regulates the heartbeat to get enough blood where it needs to be, regulates all these internal things. And, and it has this intelligence that's very sensitive to, uh, to what its needs are and what the levels of those needs if they're being met. So if we don't have enough, if we're not getting enough sleep, for example, if we don't have enough rest, that that actually interferes with the process of the brain and the, neuro, the neurons to be able to function. I mean, there's a chemical process that goes on, has to do with adenosine, and it shuts down the neurons. And if we're not getting enough sleep, we don't re replenish those. Anyway, there's, there's a process where the body knows, gosh, you didn't have enough sleep, and now our energy is lower. Our ability to think clearly is lower. Your nutrition is not good. So we don't have all the ammunition. We don't have all the fuel that we need 
efficiently to operate the body. So if we're missing some important nutrients, something's going on in the body, um, the body knows this and it, uh, it feels uh, depressed a little bit. It feels uh, the lower, the lack of energy, the ability to function. If we don't, so if we don't get enough sleep, if we're not getting enough exercise, so everything's working harmoniously. If all these things are not working and not optimized in the body, the introceptive network feels depressed. Okay, this is, this is part of it. Then another component that, that uh, creates our emotions are memories. And the memories are stories that we tell ourselves about what happened in the past. There is no reality, there is no, uh, there is no personal present juice or power that these things have except as the story we tell ourselves. We give the power to the story, we give the power to bring this back up and to repeat it and to repeat it and to go back over it and to, to push this button for ourselves. And so, so whatever the story is and whatever, uh, feelings and emotions we've had around that in the past, that comes to play also. Then we have the, another story, and that's the story that we tell ourselves about what we expect to happen in the future, what we anticipate. And then there's a third story, which is the result of what's happening in this moment right now. So we have perception, and the perception is looking around, checking where we are in space and time, checking the introceptive network, checking how this balances against the memories of the past, checking how this balances against the, our expectations of the future. So all this is being processed, is being multiplexed and processed. And at the same time, in order to, to make sure that we can survive and function, the brain is feeding us predictions about what's going to happen next and these predictions come up a thousand times a second every second all these things are you know being uh, processed in the brain mind and coming up with an opinion about what's going to happen next what's you know what's likely to happen and so you know so what's likely to happen next predicts where what muscles we're going to need how we need to act and all these things. So, so this becomes kind of interesting and kind of uh, complicated. And the predictions that are being made create uh, a response in the brain. The hypothalamus drools some hormones onto the hippocampus and the lizard brain, you know, the activating brain, and activates a response. And that response is is actually created as an emotion. So we create the emotion in the moment. The emotion is not something that is stored and we push the button and it gets turned on. We are making up the emotions as we go. And the emotions are made from those past, the future, the interceptive network, what we observe happening around us, you know, our expect expectations. And so the body is constantly, the mind body is constantly creating its emotions now. So grief is an emotion. And so we have to come to the place eventually where we recognize that this experience that we're having is not a leftover from the past, but it is being recreated in this moment, in this moment, in this moment. We keep it alive by allowing our awareness and our consciousness to keep feeding it. And this is not to say that we don't, we, that we, um, that we want to uh, erase the memory, that we want to disregard this, but rather we can get on top of it. We can see, ah, you know, I see where I've kind of got stuck, got myself stuck in this experience of the past that I'm not having anymore. And I keep telling myself the story about what I'm missing and so this keeps this, this emotion, this feeling of grief alive, keeps this active, see? And, and so it's possible for us to be fully aware, to, be, to, to fully remember whatever it is that, we've, that we're missing, that we've been grieving, to fully be conscious of that without having the, the uh, extra um, 
energy, the extra life force going into this emotion that is now putting us off center, that is now controlling us. So we can come to the place where we, where we move above, where we rise above our attachment to having this, uh, repeating this experience and repeating this emotional uh, thing. I don't know if that's helpful, but, um, but that's what they say. And the same with fear. So fear is another story. It's, I mean, you know, it's, it's an inside job. It's something that we tell ourselves. We are anxious and worried about the possibility that there may be something that happens to us. We may not survive or we may not be able to survive in any form in the way that we're comfortable with. And so fear. So this is a, you know, the amygdala, the little, little almond shaped section inside the brain that is eavesdropping on all the conversations. And when it hears something that is threatening, that threatens its own uh, sense of being and purpose, and this comes from the memory of what's happened in the past, and from the memory of what other people have told us about how terrible things can get. So these, these are active little apps, you know, they're little programs that are operating in the back of, the, of our consciousness. And so when something happens that activates this amygdala and it creates this fear response, it is based on a story. It's the way we, the way we relate to the world, you know. We relate to the world. We are in relationship all the time. And to re relate, relate comes from the Latin word relatare. Latare is to carry, re is back. Relate is to carry back. So we tell ourselves a story about what's going on. We tell ourselves a story about who we think we are. We tell ourselves a story about our past. And by the way, the story you're telling yourself about your past and all those wonderful memories, they're not really true, you know. They're a little bit true, but we miss the point, you know. We don't always see what's really happening. And then the filters come along and the mind does this, this really cool trick of kind of uh, incorporating things that didn't really happen with things that did happen, and pretty soon we can't tell the difference. And so... We're, we reconstruct our memories. Memories are not laid down like, a, like on a recording audio tape or a videotape where we're just playing back what happened. No. Memories are, are, uh, are stored in bits and chunks. They say chunks. And these chunks have little resonant hooks to them. So, you know, one chunk is the sunset. I look at this beautiful sunset, and then that has a resonant hook with the time that we were in Hawaii and having this beautiful dinner, watching the sun go down on Maui, you know, and, and that chunk goes, Oh yeah, the dinner, we had lobster. And, and so the next thing, you know, you know, we're reassembling, making up this memory, but it's coming from all these little pieces that have been put together. And we all know how inaccurate this is because you just sit down with somebody that you had an experience with five years ago and say, remember the time that we did that? And, oh yeah, that was great. And then at some point it's like, no, we didn't really go there. It was over there, or we didn't really have that. There's, there's a disconnect, you know, we remember differently what happened sometimes yesterday. So, so, so we, you know, we can come to the place where we, where we kind of get on top of it with the intellect, with discernment, we're able to see, all right, these things are happening, emotions happen, and I honor that, and I honor the fact that emotion is, is what puts me in motion. So the emotion is what the body does to get us to move, and it's getting us to move, the, the mind, brain, body, to get us to move in a direction to do something that it finds useful, important. So emotions are not hardwired, but rather they are created in the moment to move us in a direction, either toward or away from, toward something that's beneficial and useful, away from something that's painful and suffering. And, and so we don't have to be uh, under the thrall of this autopilot. We don't have to be allow our life to be controlled by this autopilot that's doing the best it can. It's, it's operating the way it's designed to operate. But because all the information that's come in is not exactly accurate and because of some uh, 
uh, you know, some conditions in the way the processor works, uh, sometimes we find ourselves in, in situations and having emotions and feelings and things that are not in harmony with what we want, that are creating more suffering, that are creating more limitations. So, so we can, you know, we deal with this by looking at it, by, by confronting it, by going, okay, what is this? And why am I feeling like this? And how does this work? And, and, this, and the tendency, especially for things like grief and fear and anxiety, these things are uncomfortable and create suffering. And because of that, we don't want to look at them. We want to put them away. We want to avoid actually having that confrontation. And so this is what keeps it real. Our, you know, our energy and our attention keeps going into the thing to avoid it. And that keeps it there. So the, so the yogis always tell us, look, just deal with it, you know, just look at it, come to terms with it. And if it takes looking at it and coming times, just do that, you know, eventually, eventually um, we begin to get some insight and we begin to get some relief and we begin to get some awareness around how this is really working. And in this way, we are able to, to, release these limitations, these conditions. So, so I hope that helps, makes some sense. Um, and, what, and, and what people call evil is actually tamas. Tamas is, um, you know, is solidity, heaviness, is inertia, but it's also, are we all still here? Can you hear me? I my my whole thing just my whole thing just shut off. It went away. I can hear you and see you. Okay, so I'm I, not sure I if can, I lost. I can hear you, but I can't see you. Okay, well um, now I can see you. Yeah. So when this this when this went away, uh, all the whatever the other question was uh, also went away. Um, so we either will have to deal with probably I just, we can deal with that tomorrow, whatever that question was. You were talking huh? about evil. You were talking oh, about evil. evil. Yeah. Yeah. That was the, that wasn't and even the last way to say what evil was. Yeah. Tamas, Tamas is again, structure, solidity. It's also inertia and heaviness and heaviness is not necessarily evil or a bad thing. The word guru means heavy. You know, guru is heaviness, structure, solidity. So tamas is not evil. Evil is a word that relates to uh, the idea that there's a force of good and a force of evil, that there is somehow two forces in the universe, that there is that which is uplifting and elevating and that which is trying to tear it down and rip it apart. And this concept, this idea, was born in the mind of a fellow named Zoroaster, who uh, uh, back in, the, in uh, Persia, back in was it 600 BCE, something like that, 700 BCE. So Zoroaster came up with this idea that in the universe there is Ahura, the god of light and fire, and there is the Ahura Mazda, and then there are the Asuras, there are the, the uh, uh, Araman, um, the force of evil. And the force of evil is in a battle against the forces of good, cosmic battle. And each one of us has to make a commitment to sign up for one side. We're either fighting for the side of good or fighting for the side of evil. So this idea of two forces that are at battle in the universe, this came from uh, from Zoroaster. And Zoroaster then, because the Persians had captured the Jews, all the top, you know, part of the Israelites were taken into captivity in Babylon. And at that time, they became exposed to these ideas about the forces of good and evil fighting. And so then this became part of the Jewish tradition, which became part of the Christian tradition. And so now we have this idea that everybody carries around that there is a force of evil that is the bad thing and forces of good it's not true 
you know, this is dualistic. There is no evil. There is only uh, righteous action, things that are useful, and there are things that are not useful and things that are impediments. It's not evil. It's not a separate force. It's just, you know, the conditions of this heaviness, excuse me, um, that creates conditionings and sufferings and limitation. So, so hopefully that's helpful. Um, from Will Bailey, upon departing the body and not being born again, what form, if any, does embodiment take when awakened to the state of being, in the state of being Krishna? In, so uh, when we talk about Krishna, again, we're talking about um, pure conscious awareness, higher consciousness, pure consciousness. And when we are experiencing pure consciousness, we are not identified with any specific form, with any specific body. So we are, we are awake and aware, conscious. And this is one of these paradoxes where here we are, as, uh, as awareness and, this, and the fear, the anxiety that comes along, along a lot of times is, if I'm really successful at this, I won't be. You know, this will, this will end my sense of independent existence. Whatever I think of as I won't exist anymore. And if that happens, um, you know, what's the fun in that? I, I want to continue to have this adventure as long as possible. And... But And so the paradox is one where we are seeing this from this limited point of view, where we are so identified with, um, with, the, with, the, um, uh, with the character, with the character that we've created, with this identification, uh, so identified with that, that we are not open to the possibility that we can be awake and aware and conscious fully conscious, fully aware, fully awake as, as, as a sort of cosmic self and have that be uh, perfect, be enough. See? To, to awaken to this pure conscious awareness and in that pure conscious awareness we experience joy, bliss. It is said to be sat-chit-ananda, being with conscious awareness and ever new bliss, ever new joy. And so this is an experience and we don't have to, we don't have to wait to find out what that's about. We can do that now. We can do that every day when we sit to meditate. We come into that awareness and yes, we're no longer identified with the senses and we're no longer identified with the memory and we're no longer identified with the conditionings, none of that, but we are awake and aware and bright. You know, and we don't, and there is no sense that we've lost anything. No, it's actually, you know, we found where it's like waking up from a dream. It's like, wow, you know, and when that happens, we're fully aware, fully awake to it. So it's different. It's not like being this individualized consciousness, but it's also not like ceasing to be. So I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, you know, so it sort of seems paradoxical. And all I can tell you is the best way to figure that out is to have the experience, you know. And when you really, you know, really take the time to sit in the silence and really allow the mind to come quiet and, and have that transcendent experience where you move beyond the stories, the mind, the relation, all that, move beyond all that and just rest in awareness. And... And it's fully satisfying. It's fully um, uh, filled with uh, with joy, not emotional joy, but this joy, this bliss of being and awareness, and and continue uh, continual awakening. So, um, so it's kind of hard to have to have concepts to explain things that go beyond conceptualization. Um, so all we can say is we, you know, we trust what the masters have told us. We have faith and uh, follow the recipe. And if we do that, then we find out that we can have the experience and know for ourselves. So that's, that's what's recommended. Okay. All right. So this is good for today. Tomorrow we'll continue on with chapter four of the Gita and get a little bit more into 
uh, this idea of uh, action and inaction and see where Krishna takes us next. So be joyful and uh, take care of each other. Don't forget to laugh. It's important. And uh, have a good day. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. Have a good day, everybody.